Hello, beautiful people, and much love from Morocco. As predicted in our last episode, and as I have done many times before, we did not end up recording another episode of Yays of Our Lives before we left. And while we're away, Ange is going away, so we're taking a little break from the show for a couple of weeks to just allow for our multinational <laughs> adventures, which, of course, you will hear all about when we are both in the same country again, but just re-releasing some of our favourite episodes over the coming weeks so that you have something in your ears in case you missed any of them. This is one of the very best and I hope you enjoy. Because I think a lot of my life has been lived in scarcity and fear where I think in love and abundance, especially in those areas, it's only going to propel me forward, I believe. Great things take a lot of time and the feeling you get after the six, seven, eight years, however it took you, is amazing. It's electric. And I think young people need to understand that it takes a long time to get great things. Welcome to the Seize the Yay podcast. Busy and happy are not the same thing. We too rarely question what makes the heart sing. We work, then we rest, but rarely we play and often don't realise there's more than one way. So this is a platform to hear and explore the stories of those who found lives they adore. The good, bad and ugly, the best and worst day will bear all the facets of seizing your yay. I'm Sarah Davidson, or Spoonful of Sarah, a lawyer turned fun entrepreneur who swapped the suits and heels to co-found Matcha Maiden and Matcha Milk Bar. Seize the Yay is a series of conversations on finding a life you love and exploring the self-doubt, challenge, joy and fulfilment along the way. Welcome back, lovely neighborhood. Thank you so much for your patience over the past few weeks. I can't believe I was so anal about having episodes in the bank for our trip, but then ended up having to take a break anyway after we got back with another super cold, which was so much fun. Pretty much didn't have a voice for the past couple of weeks, which was very hard in my industry, but we're getting there slowly and are back. So really appreciate your patience. I hope you're all looking after yourselves as well and are keeping healthy in cold and flu season. It worked out though as I couldn't think of a cooler guest to kick off the second half of the year with than the legend that I have in store for you today. You probably know by now that I get so excited by people whose brains tick as crazily and as deeply as mine likes to so I was like a kid in a candy store with this guest and felt maybe the least articulate that I have in a long time next to his eloquence. I am endlessly fascinated by Harry Garside and seems most of Australia and the world shares that view and not only because he is a championship boxer who won the nation's first medal in boxing at the Olympics in over three decades in Tokyo. While his rise to international success from losing 10 out of his first 18 fights at the humble Lilydale Youth Club is also fascinating, I still don't think that's the reason we're so enamoured with him. While Harry's upbringing and beloved sport align very strongly with traditional ideas about masculinity and strength, it's his unique passion for changing those stereotypes that I fell in love with, complementing his training with ballet classes and wearing nail polish to some of his fights. And just when you think you've figured him out, he reveals a whole new facet of himself and his view on the world. And I could ramble on forever about how much it stretched my own mind getting to have this conversation with him. I'll let you hear more about it for yourself as he tells it so perfectly and I'm sure you'll see from this conversation why I just think he's one of the most fascinating human beings. This is one of my favorite episodes all year so I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Harry Garside, welcome to Seize the Yay. Yeah, thank you for having me on. I'm so excited. As I mentioned, I've been fangirling from afar and my partner Nick has been doing the same. We've followed your journey for a while now and it's uh, so, so nice to have you on the show. Yeah, I'm, I'm blessed to be on. Me and my partner, as I was saying to you before the show, we're having a good stalk of your Instagram last night and we're loving it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a total mess. It's an absolute car accident and I love it. <laughs> Which leads really nicely to our little icebreaker. Before I get into the first section of the show, I like to start every episode just by asking everyone what the most down-to-earth thing is about them to break through what can often be a pretty glossy surface, especially when, you know, we mentioned just before we started recording that you've been to the Olympics, you have some amazing achievements under your belt. And if people walk into your life right now, they often see, you know, a really polished side of you forgetting that there's so much else beneath the surface. But I think it's really important from the beginning to sort of highlight the things about you that are really human and really normal. So what's something really relatable about you? So I think 
Well, I know more so. I had an experience when I was about eight. I think it was about eight, seven or eight, and I was traveling to the Northern Territory with my family. And I just remember we were driving through an Indigenous community and I was looking out the window and there was young kids playing and they're in poverty, like very poverty-stricken conditions. And I just remember thinking in that moment, what is the difference between me and that young kid? Obviously, at the time, I was too young. I didn't fully understand what was going on. But looking back at my life as a 24-year-old, I've just never thought that I'm better than anyone. I've never, I've never, and it's a blessing and a curse because it's also the thing that made me lose at the Olympics. And it's also the thing that, yeah, so it's a blessing and a curse in the sense of like, I've never once sort of looked down on people or anything like that. And I had that from an early age at seven or eight when I was in the Northern Territory. And then, as I said, it's a bit of a curse as well, going to the Olympics and fighting the, the favorite to win the gold medal and kind of losing the fight before I even got in there because I didn't fully believe that I was better than him. And yeah, so there's two sides of each coin. I always try my hardest to understand that we're all just human. That's it. And it doesn't matter where people start in life, but like you can always get to where they are. You just have to work hard, be consistent. But yeah, that's, and that's probably the thing that I think is pretty down to earth about me. That is one of my favorite answers in like 300 episodes. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's so fascinating because I think that is one thing that comes across really clearly. Like in researching for the episode, I was watching, you know, your interviews from quite a few different things immediately before the Olympics, just after, more recently, and like that real humility of like being able to get on other people's level and also knowing that you didn't start with a leg up, you know, as we were just talking about before, like that comes through so clearly. But it's also interesting, like it's so endearing. It's what makes the nation love you so much. Like I've never thought about the psychology of the competitive edge that you lose if you're too humble. Like there's like that weird line in the middle where you want to always be down to earth, but you also have to be able to when you talk yourself business, up when you need to. That's you so interesting. The support around you. Well, something Tyro has been an innovation leader yeah. for almost <laughs> Years. So when you're with us, is that just like that product placement? That could be me. Sorry. Yeah, it's gone now. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what happened. I was, was like, so random. I was like, is this a commercial? <laughs> yeah, I was like, is he answering for you? Is this your spokesperson? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, it was one of my other tabs. <laughs> no, no, <stop. laughs> Oh my god, I love it. It's never happened before. I was like, we're both so confused. I was like, what is happening? (laughs) Commercial break. (laughs) It's like, no guest has ever brought their own ad to the show, but like, sure. (laughs) (laughs) So I was trying to get my leg out. (laughs) (laughs) I'm humble, but not that humble. (laughs) I brought my own sponsors with me. That was also amazing. What an amazing start to the episode. I'm totally leaving that in. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, but yeah, I just think I think the psychology around that is so interesting. And later on we'll get to that whole fine line between like confidence and then self-doubt and then not being too overconfident, but then not selling yourself so short that you can't actually perform when you want to and, and undervaluing your skills and obviously immense talent. But It's so nice. You mentioned before we started recording as well that, you know, you came from really humble beginnings. Your your parents weren't Olympians. You didn't come from a background that it immediately makes sense that you've gone to the Olympics and and competed at such a high level. You, you know, don't know anyone who went to, none of your kind of friends from childhood went to university. And I think that too is like all the obvious markers for a really successful climb of the ladder weren't necessarily there to begin with, but you've still done it. So my first section of every podcast is your way TA, which is your pathway tracing back from childhood to remind everyone like it's almost never a smooth journey. It's almost never what you expect it's going to be, but the dot points all connect eventually mm. when you look back. So take us back to young you, youngest of three boys, blokey dad, bit of a softer mum, and like what your childhood was like. I, I feel so blessed that I get the opportunity to constantly sort of like think about my childhood this is every time I do a podcast it's almost like a psychology session which which is unreal so I learn something new every time I tell a story and for me I was I was really fortunate to be the youngest of three boys and always felt super loved and super connected by my family but at the same time I felt quite different to my two brothers and of course my dad and 
I was just a little bit softer to them. They were they were pretty rough around the edges and really good people and really kind people. But me personally, I just felt I was more connected to my mum's energy and what my mum was doing and I didn't particularly want to do what the, the guys were doing in my family. Every time I was sort of doing what they were doing, I sort of didn't fully enjoy it, but I was more so doing it to fit in. And it's probably half the reason I started boxing as well. And just super fortunate that I fell in love with the sport within the first week and and the places <laughs> it's taken me and the man that I am now because of that, it's pretty crazy. But initially I didn't start it because I really wanted to. I started it more so to sort of be a man or to prove that I was a man and, and to, my, to my brothers and my dad. Wow, that's so interesting that, again, like you think that so many boys get into boxing because it is like a marker of masculinity, but yours was more to prove that you had that even though that's not necessarily kind of like it was like a mask of on the outside to fit in. And it's so interesting when we're younger how much effort and time and how much of our identity goes into just trying to fit in and just trying to make sense of like who we are. But very, very fortunate that you turned out to love it so much. And it's interesting that you started it at such a young age, like nine. And most kids, when they start something at nine, it's very rare that you actually go on to do that as a job. Mm. So how did you progress from like a childhood activity to like, I'm going to go to the Olympics? Like when did that from just stumbling into something to like doing really well at it actually happen? I feel for me, I was just a sporting fan from the age of like six, seven, eight years old. So I always wanted to like you dream of representing your country at the biggest event. I always watched the Olympics, Commonwealth Games, anything Australia was playing in. I just loved sport. And when I started boxing, I didn't fully know that you could go to the Olympics for boxing. But yeah, as I slowly progressed through, through the boxing career, I'm very fortunate as well that my coach, who's still my coach to date, he's 80 years old. He's a veteran of the sport and he sort of just made me feel special. He fed me with a lot of love. A lot of, he says things like, oh, you're so naturally gifted. Your footwork is impeccable. And he would say things like that and I would feel so good. But then looking back now, he pretty much said to every kid that walked into that, every kid that walked into that gym. So I'm no, I'm no special. I just took it and I fully believed it. And I think as well, I, there's two reasons as to why I kept going. I wasn't successful very early on, but the reasons why I kept going back was one, because of him. He fed me with so much love and positivity, made me feel good about myself. And then the second is because boxing gave me an identity that I always wanted to be sort of a tough guy to prove that I was a man and it gave me that especially in my primary school years and high school years and, and I was searching for that for a long time and I finally got it and yeah that's the re- they're the two reasons why I think I kept going back and I kept loving it and then also as well the feeling boxing gives me is, is quite electric as well. Yeah wow I, we just had Men's Health Week a couple of weeks ago and we did an episode we do one every year and the constantly recurring theme is this like outdated view of masculinity that has forced so many men into really convoluted either behaviors or just ways of thinking about their identity and pushes you to do certain things and be certain ways when now I think it's getting a lot better and and role models like yourself who are challenging those stereotypes are are amazing and allowing younger boys to not necessarily think they always need to be this macho person. But I, I think you've become an amazing role model for breaking down those stereotypes. And I definitely want to get to that point. But I think another really important thing is also we have this instant gratuity thing, right? If we're not winning and we're not good at something straight away, I personally give up pretty easily. Like I think I'm resilient, but as soon as something's a little bit hard, I'm like, ugh. But It's interesting that, you know, I've heard you say that you, up until kind of your teenage years, you'd lost more fights than you'd won. You'd lost 10 out of your first 18 fights at Lilydale Youth Club. And even with someone, an amazing supporter in your corner telling you you're really good, you know, most people don't have the strength to kind of keep going. So I think a quote that I really love is the idea that life rewards you on your fifth or sixth or ninth or tenth try. So never give up because it's probably the time you give up is usually just before the one where it's actually going to work. What did go through your mind to get you through? What gave you your eyes on the prize, even when it did feel so far away? That's a really good question. There's so many things that play into that. I hate giving up. And and I think the Younger, it's a blessing and a curse that as well because there, there, there needs to be a time where you actually like need to logically look at something and go, 
wow, say in a relationship, is it time to walk away or is it time to end this friendship? Or, you I mean, you've actually got to look at it and I really struggle to do those things. And, yeah, I just I just truly wanted to achieve good things in, in my sport of boxing. And there was many people who my family members, close friends, even my coach who I love and adore said a couple of things to me throughout that process where it made me really think like, am I cut out for this? Am, am I ever going to achieve what I want to achieve in my boxing career? And there was always just a little boy inside of me that truly believes that I could be an astronaut. You know what I mean? You know how kids are so, they can dream so hard. And yeah. I've still got that inside of me now. Like it doesn't happen all the time. And it's not as loud as what it was when I was a kid, but it's still there. Like I truly believe if, if I set my mind to something, I can achieve anything. And I think that's something that I personally feel the younger generation is missing out on. It's not their fault in the sense of like, if you want instant money, go get crypto or NFTs. If you want instant look good, go get Botox, go get your tummy tuck. If you want, it's just instant gratification, go on Instagram and upload a photo and edit it heaps. Like everything's so instant. And I think even like you get a TV now, it lasts two, three years. You get a TV 60 years ago, it probably still lasts now. Everything's just so instant and it's disposable and I just, great things take a lot of time and I'm sure you can vouch for that. I saw in your bio that you're a lawyer. Like that would have taken a long time and the feeling you get after the six, seven, eight years, however long it took you, is amazing. It's electric and I think young people need to understand that it takes a long time to get great things. Oh my gosh, that is the perfect soundbite for this entire show and everything I try and convey that like any climb worth climbing or any journey worth embarking on is most of the great ones aren't overnight. They might look overnight because you only see the tiny tip of the mountain, but all the grueling times of rejections and setbacks and, you know, failures of like failures, even though I think like failures are really a learning curve that propel you forwards in some way. There's just so much that comes before everyone's journey. And you're so right about that instant gratuity thing. Like we were just a couple of weeks ago in Egypt for our honeymoon and I was laughing about how like we have to repaint our house every five years because like the paint fades, you know, from the sun in five years time. These colors that you could see on the wall from like 5,000 years ago and they're still lasting. And I'm like, what has happened to humanity where we want everything here and now and we don't care if it lasts. But the idea of like patience and not taking one no as like a permanent no, you know, I think many people, if they had faced more failures than wins, you know, that would have been the end for them. But if you had let that topple you, you never would have found out you could have gone to the Olympics. So I think you're such a good example of like, just keep going, just keep believing that, you know, it's worth trying the next try because you never know when will be the try that actually ends up getting you to a national championship to then the Com Games, to then the Olympics. And I can't even imagine what that was like when that actually happened. So what do you think was the turning point? Was it a skill thing that you just trained differently? Was it, I know that you did some work with the Reach Foundation. That was 12 months before your first nationals. Was that the turning point more mentally than physically? Like what do you think changed? Yeah, I feel like it's a it's a cocktail of things and Reach is a massive the Reach Foundation, for those people who don't know, is a youth organization and they entered my school when I was 15, 16. And prior to that, I had no success in boxing. And then a year after being involved, I finally won my first nationals and they gave me the ability to have space where I could just explore myself and explore the world and stumble, fall, be messy, fuck up and get back up again. And I think that's such a valuable place for a young person because I'm 24 and I've still got no idea who I am. No idea. I'm working it out slowly. And especially when I was 15, 16, I had even less of an idea. And I just think the space where you can really stumble, fall, triumph, experience things is a beautiful space. And I'm really fortunate that it's my life. And I think as well that 10 weeks before my first national win, I remember saying to myself, I almost gave myself a bit of an ultimatum. I said, if I don't win this, I need to think about what I'm going to do with my future. And I remember I gave 10 weeks, 10 weeks of waking up at a certain time, really focusing on showing up at every session, having an intention and, and working my ass off. 
And then, you know, mean, really making sure I was doing everything I possibly could, all the one percenters outside of the boxing gym too, the mindset stuff. And I finally got to my first nationals knowing that I had done everything I could. Fortunately, I definitely wasn't the favorite to take that out. I fortunately took it out. And I think it's because I didn't turn my back on myself throughout that process. You can lie to people, you can lie to your friends, you can lie to your family, but you'll never lie to yourself. And, and that's a beautiful place to be is when you know you never lied to yourself. Oh, my gosh. I've never thought about it that way, the idea of like not turning your back on yourself. We're so focused on how we care for others, our interactions outwardly. But I think, yeah, the internal work is what really can make a difference between you getting where you want to go and, and not. And then from there on, it just you just propel to then, you know, three years later, the Gold Coast Com Games and then the 2020 Summer Olympics, that childhood dream that I imagine felt impossible for so long before winning what at the first time an Australian has won a medal in boxing in over three decades. <laughs> Talk us through that. Like has the dust settled? How do you feel? What was that like actually going to the Olympics? And from that, you know, 2015 you to 2020 you, obviously – it was a big like narrative change between like having, you know, a losing streak to suddenly being on this, this up and up. I read that you got hypnotized before the Olympics. You're obviously like very open-minded to a really, you know, all rounded way to prepare yourself for these things. What was that five year stretch? Like, I just can't even imagine after the start you had to then being like our superstar. It was a crazy five years, but like looking back, I I was just really grateful that Boxing Australia, they gave me so many opportunities, so many opportunities to just go. So I tried for the Rio Olympics and missed out on two occasions to make the team. And then after that, it was really like, oh, I need to hone in on a few things and like started really focusing on mindset. I put my room, there was about six Australian flags in my room. There was Olympic paraphernalia everywhere, all photos. And <laughs> it was quite psychotic. It was like a, like an eight-year-old boy's, eight-year-old boy's room. I didn't like to bring too many people over. <laughs> Manifestation. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but just really started to focus on the mindset stuff. And the older generation, they like to trash the phone use and stuff like that. But I think one of the best things about the phone is that everything's at our fingertips. And it's like you get the choice if you're conscious enough. You get the choice of what you digest online. All this mindset stuff, that I just started like looking up online. What did all the greats do? What did some people that I really like do? Some people who I really got, Kerry Pothurst and Natalie Cook, the 2000 Olympic beach volleyballers, gold medalists. I got a lot from them. Every time they went to the shops, they would buy something gold and gold was just always on their mind. And and people like that, I was like really sort of motivated and inspired by it. And I slowly but surely changed my mindset and changed my belief system from 2015, 2016, and then 2018 and of course 2020. But there was a lot of ups and downs in that process as well. But like something that I want to add on what we're talking about just before around the process, like you fail so many times in the process, but I think the, one of the biggest things is if you love what you do, of course, we don't want to fail. It sucks. It's the worst feeling. It's shit. But if you love what you do, like you sort of don't particularly care. It's all about the journey and all about the process. Like I kind of yeah. just really like boxing. I love representing Australia and I love the feeling it gives me. And it's like, of course, I strive for greatness, but I'm just grateful that I get to box in general. Mm. I think it's so interesting as well that it's the mindset you bring to something like a setback that really changes the way you cope with it. Like I've sort of really trained my brain to see a pain point or a setback or a, an, a something that would otherwise feel like a failure as like if I immediately look for the lesson in that, then it's less painful because almost straight away you're like, oh, this is silver lining. Like, of course, it's a little bit embarrassing, it hurts your ego, but if you know what to look for quicker then the pain part of it, it's so instantaneous compared to, you know, you could wallow, you could let it, you know, control you or consume you for weeks and weeks, or you could go, okay, that's done. But actually this failure, I'm going to use it as a failure forwards and it's going to better me for without the setbacks, you wouldn't actually progress. You'd just be cruising along and and never learn the things that you need to learn to better yourself for next time. So I love that you really embrace like the macro is that you love what you do. So all the micro forward, back, forward, back is like part of, part of that journey and, and it all slots in. One of the things I think is extraordinary about you is you are only 24 and, of course, you've had like a a lifetime worth of experience, but you're also incredibly self-aware. 
and incredibly well adjusted <laughs> for someone your age, particularly for guys who tend to not necessarily get, I mean, mass generalization, but tend to not get to that real self-reflection so early. But it seems like you've had that curiosity for understanding your mind and your identity and looking at things in a less than traditional way and experimenting with, you know, ballet you started doing in 2019 and even, you know, hypnotherapy is quite alternative. Have you always been that curious? And where do you think you got that from? I honestly credit a lot of it for my mum. So I'm super blessed that my mum is super spiritual. She's a medium, so she talks to dead people. Yeah. <gasps> She's a medium. Yeah, pretty hectic. Wow. So growing up for me, like it was a bit, she had tarot cards and crystals and all that sort of holy joy sort of stuff. And <laughs> <Holy> <laughs> Um, I, <laughs> oh, hypnotherapy is like level one basic for you. <laughs> hypnotherapy was actually pretty full on though. I woke up from it and I was bawling my eyes out. I was like, I remember what happened. But I was wow. like, it was quite amazing. And that's actually something that I love most about myself. And I think I get it from my mum, but it, it's my want and my ability to literally try anything. I really don't think there's anything there probably someone would stump me if they're listening to this, but I don't think there's much that I couldn't do, that I wouldn't try at least. Challenge accepted. Yeah. <laughs> Someone's like, murder someone. I'm like, I don't want to. Yeah. <laughs> Just to see what would happen. Like, how would you feel? Let's do a podcast about that. I hear true crime podcasts are going really well on the chat. Like, we could totally do one together. Absolutely. <laughs> I've always had that and I, I, I just love experiencing things and I'm very philosophical with with how I think and, and I truly believe that this is all quite meaningless but at the same time it's very meaningful and I truly, I'm not religious, I honestly believe it's a bit of a, a miserable view but I think that when we die that's it and we've only got one sort of life and we just got to live it and experience it and I truly think that when we die that's it, nothing else happens and me and my dad were talking about this and he was like, then why do you care about what you do in this life and it's like, because it makes me feel good. It makes me feel good to experience things. It makes me feel good that we have feelings, we have emotions, we have connection. Like That's a beautiful thing and I love waking up and experiencing that. But it still doesn't take away from my belief that I think this is all quite meaningless. And I think there's beauty and humbleness in that. I feel like there's definitely another career for you in poetry and some kind of eloquent articulation because actually I did hear that you wooed Ash with poetry so I think you're already onto the poetry. I did. <laughs> you're very very articulate <laughs> but it's, it's also interesting coming back to that whole idea of masculinity and stereotypes. I had um, Bobby Holland Hanton who's been Chris Hemsworth's stunt double for the last 10 years on the show who like on the outside is the epitome of masculinity and traditional like brawn and all those kinds of concepts but his origins were in a gymnastics career and that you know when he was younger wasn't cool then it wasn't cool to and similar to ballet like men in lycra it's like not your typical thing that you expect to see and now that it's led him to a career being Thor it's considered cool back then it wasn't and I think when you do things a little bit differently or a little bit against the grain you do face a lot of bullying or teasing or just people misunderstanding you but you seem to have always been quite comfortable to like you said try different things even if they're not what normal dudes your age are doing. How did you did you face, like, for example, when you started doing ballet? Did you, I actually was with the Australian Ballet in a past life, so I was very, very proud to watch some <laughs> video footage of you doing plies at the bar. It made me so happy. But I've been flying the flag for years that, like, no one has a better physique and longer endurance and muscle strength than ballerinas. But there's still that sort of, like, preconception that it's for, for girls only. So when you do do something new, do you face criticism? How do you deal with that? How do you push through and just be like, look, I'm curious about it. I'm not threatened in my masculinity about it. Like, how can you encourage younger boys to not be so conditioned by what traditional masculinity looks like? That's a really good question because I must admit through, through most of my high school years, like I would try some of this stuff outside of school or I would do things outside of school where no one was really watching or no one really knew what I was doing. I would, I would think, I would ponder, I would climb trees. But at school, I wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't like, I wouldn't, I would go to school and I was part of the cool group. I was always part of the cool group. And there's something about when you're young, you don't want to feel like you're not a part of the tribe. You don't want to feel like, you, you want to feel like you're part of the community. You don't want to be the outcast. It's the worst feeling. 
I was pretty scared to show my true authentic colors when I was in high school, I must admit. Even after reach, I slowly but surely started to unpack a little bit more and started to have a bit more confidence to show my mates. It was more so after high school, though, where I started to, you would just be like, like, honestly, what, what does it matter if someone doesn't like what I do with my life? It's almost like a, like, I don't like to criticize people, but it's a bit of a projection of their own stuff. And it's like, as long as I'm not hurting anyone else, like me wearing a skirt, some of the backlash that I got from that, me doing ballet, some of the comments I get from that. And it's just like, why do you care so much about what I do in my life? And it's like, <laughs> I'm having fun. I'm not hurting anyone. I just don't understand that. Like, and it's sad. I actually, I feel for them. I genuinely do because maybe they feel like they wish they had the, the chance to experience who they really are. And I actually feel for them because I have the confidence to do that. And, and I wish they had it too because they would, they would feel amazing if they could just really, and whether it be ballet or wearing a skirt, whatever it is, if they could just experience some things that they really want to do without the fear of judgment, they would feel so much better, I believe. Oh, totally. It's interesting you said that, that like without the fear of judgment. I often say to people in like a career context or trying something new or starting a business or learning a new skill, whatever it is, when we're talking about the idea of fear of failure, I'm like, what if you knew you could fail? Like you could try something, you wouldn't be good at it and you'd fail, but no one would ever know about it. Would you be scared anymore? And most of the time they're like, no. So I'm like, you're not scared of failing. You don't think that if you failed, you'd be a worse person. You're scared of people knowing that you failed. You're scared of looking silly, not feeling silly, looking silly, which means it's like such a useless fear. Like it's not related to anything. It's this intangible thing about people's opinions who you don't care about anyway. And it's so liberating when you let go of that. So I, I could not agree more. And I was thinking about this the other day. I, was, I actually said this to my partner. I was saying like, I'm a little bit concerned and I'm, I'm very optimistic. I must admit, I'm very much glass half full type guy. But there is, of course, I think pretty full on about the world. And I, and I think right now, I think we think, we're teaching young people almost narcissistic tendencies in the sense of like, it's very much I, 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 I deserve my happiness. I, I want to feel instant gratification. I, it's all I, I, I. And I think human history, the reason as to why we are where we are is because we all worked collectively most of the time. And I think, and I think we've got to slowly teach young people that it's actually really important to be part of society and be kind to people and treat people with respect and help your neighbor out and some things that I feel like we're kind of losing because everyone's kind of at war on these social media platforms. And it's like, I just don't know. If it, like, as I said, I'm quite optimistic about the future, but at the same time, just a little bit concerned about young people not learning valuable things around community and, and connection and yeah, that's just a little, that was a bit off topic, but yeah. <laughs> Something <I'm, laughs> no, I totally agree yeah. with you. I talk about it all the time. And I think having had ballet as a real grounding community, like I think the role that religion once played in community or that like ethnicities, certain celebrations around ethnicities played, we're losing that connection because, you know, the role of religion and the role of things like that are fading slowly in this day and age, but we're not replacing them with anything, which is I think why kids who do a sport, team sport or individual, but who are part of something, it gives them a belonging that like grounds them through their younger years. And I think the kids who don't have that and also don't have a religion or any kind of like connection to something, that's where you start to get really lost. It's so hard to find your identity because there's not a consistent, safe, grounded place. And I think that's why like whatever sport or whatever activity it is, whether it's music or whatever, I want my kids to do some kind of thing that gives them a community because that gives you the safety to like figure out who you are. Mm. Even if you don't keep doing that sport and, you know, later in your life, it gives you discipline. It gives you like belonging, working with others, learning about managing yourself, time management, all of those things that you get from whether it's sport or music or just, just having a hobby. Yeah. One of my biggest role models is Dia Khan. I truly love everything she's about. She's a Muslim journalist and she spent time on the front lines with white supremacists and then in another series, Jihadist. And she says the biggest thing, the reason we all think that they're really bad people and she articulates it very well and I highly recommend people looking her up, Dia Khan. But she articulates that the reason as to why those people, they're usually young, young men usually join these things is because of love. It's because they want connection. They want someone to care about them. And it's like, 
she says, if we can create systems that are more positive, where they feel accepted, feel heard, feel cared about, they wouldn't need to go to these extreme organizations that are pretty full on. You know what I mean? They would have something. And it's just like, that's why I think like community youth centers, the Lurdale Youth Club that I grew up in, they're so valuable and so important. Yeah, I agree. And that was a big part of the discussions for Men's Health Week, but around mental health in particular was starting from really young age, but getting boys connected in with something, some kind of purpose or something to keep them, you know, safe and, and to keep them feeling like they belong. It's it's all like the key, what are they, the five key basic human needs and one of them is belonging. You need to feel like you belong to something, otherwise everything else starts to to fall out of place. And I think you, you've become such an amazing role model for that, not just belonging, but belonging not just by emulating what everyone else is doing. Like you're a plumber, you know, you're a boxer. In many ways, you tick a lot of boxes that make it easy for you to fit in. But you, I love that also you're like, yeah, but fuck it, I'm going to do ballet. I'm going to wear nail polish. I'm going to wear skirts. Like that confuses a lot of people because you're like on one side of you, the typical male, and then on the other side, you're like, but I, but nah, like I'm just going to do these, <laughs> these other incongruent things. But that's why I think it's really powerful because you're not one or the other. You know, if you were just doing the nail polish and skirts, it would make it easy for a lot of men to, to switch off to you because they'd be like, oh, well, he's not like me. But because you can also be the blokey bloke, you've got this like power to just be like, yeah, I can have both and I'm comfortable with that. It's amazing. I, and I'm not going to lie, I generally, the more that I talk to people, the more that I understand that I think most humans, if not all, are like that too. We're kind of walking contradictions and we, we, love, yeah. we love things <laughs> but then also love something that is the polar opposite and that's okay. Like You don't have to. And I understand, I, I've thought about it, why I think humans stereotype or why we generalize and I think it's to save energy, it's to conserve energy. It makes it easier in our brain to decipher, okay, this person does this. Okay, they're going to most likely be like that. And I understand that we do that and understand why we do it. But it's like I truly believe that if you just let everyone live freely and everyone live without social construction, like the world would be some crazy place. People would be doing the most weird and wonderful things and I think <laughs> that would be beautiful to watch. Yeah. <laughs> Oh my gosh, you have one of those brains that I just want to create. You're like my favorite kind of guest. Your brain is just so oh interesting. Like I just want to crawl in there and like pick apart all the ways you're thinking. No, it's fascinating. And I think in a very similar way. I'm like, I truly think that the more different things you try, whether you're crap at them or not, like who cares? You don't have to win at everything. The more things you try, every time you try something new, you find a new piece of your personality. Mm. Like even if it's a piece that's like, I actually don't like that activity, that's a new piece. And like the the most open-minded, broadly skilled and interesting people are the people who have tried lots of random shit and kept going with some of it and, and haven't with other things. But you're just such a fascinating human. But I also love that at the same time you've been able to have this honed-in focus on now coming back for Paris 2024. So back to boxing, amidst all this reflection, how are you training? Do you box every day? Like how do you, your poor body must just, feel thrashed all the time <laughs> and where does the ballet fit in like you know how are you preparing yeah boxing takes up a lot of my time in saying that though i train twice a day it sounds like well there's a lot of free time to just recover listen to podcasts do do my own sort of stuff i like to do ballet once a week i do travel a lot so sometimes i'm not able to do it once a week but it's usually once a week and i'm just the type because i've got a lot of free time i've got a lot of time to think <laughs> and um i really enjoy that just ponder in a tree <laughs> <laughs> Um, someone said this thing to me. It's called mental masturbation, and I think that that's—I I actually think that's what I do. I'm like, that is such a good point. <laughs> so I constantly do Hot. stuff like that. Hot. Yeah. Love it. Love it. Amazing. <laughs> yeah, a lot of my time, like I must admit, I, it's like it's dedicated to a goal and. I must admit, I feel a little bit lost if I don't have a bit of a direction that I'm going in. Like, I do understand that after a fight, there is one or two weeks where you need to relax, recover, not have anything in sight. But if that lasts for more than a month, I'm like losing my, my I, I notice my mental clarity and mental stability starts to sort of like falter. And I really need focus, direction. I'm very aware of my personality and it's very extreme. So there's all these positive things that, yes, we're talking about right now and I am all of this. And I am also messy, dark, 
got trauma as we all do some things that I'm navigating some things I'm not proud of and just just understanding that if I don't have direction if I don't have focus it could go in a really bad direction so I'm very aware of that and I have been for a very long time I think that's something that's also really great about you is that, I mean, to the extent that you're comfortable to talk about it, there's a part of this podcast that's all about that, the NATA, all the things that get in the way of your joy, because there's so much of that conversation that never makes it to the surface because it's so much like the Olympics and how you're going, how you're training and mindset and ballet and, you know, so many headlines are the ballet dancing plumber becomes a boxing Olympian, like <laughs> which is amazing. I mean, it's so wonderful, but I'm sure there's so much shit that you would want other people trying to emulate what you're doing to understand that it's not all positives it's not all those headlines you know there's a lot of stuff that goes on behind the scenes to get you here so whatever you're comfortable talking about what are some of the big things that challenge you and I I think a really active mind does open you up to such deep pondering but also like our brains are dark places because the spectrum is broader I think which means the highs are higher but the lows can be lower as well yeah absolutely it's something that I realized pretty early on before I started boxing that my brain was quite unique and, and full on and, and active. We'll just say active and boxing. <laughs> boxing Busy. <laughs> always on. And my. No. <laughs> when, I, when I started boxing, I, I was pretty tired. I was pretty exhausted. And that's what physical exercise has always given me. It's given me space for my thoughts to not be as loud. It's given me time for me to be a little bit more tired and me to have a good sleep. And I notice when I'm not training that my thoughts are a little bit wilder and it's a little bit less to control. And probably the dark things in, inside of me, it's like I, I truly believe that most, if not all, successful people, they've all got something that's driving them. And whether that be something that happened when they were really young, whether that be generational, whether that be something someone said to them in their teenage years, whatever it is, for me, I always felt mine was people often criticized me and criticize my family. And a lot of, I'll be completely honest, a lot of what I do is out of spite. A lot of what I do is to stick the middle finger up to the people who didn't believe in me and believe in my family. And that's a nasty place to be as well because it's like, am I doing it because I love the sport or am I doing it to make my family proud and telling those people to F off who criticize my family. And I do think about that sometimes. Also, like I've been battling addiction for my whole life and I'm just, I'm fortunate that my addiction is socially accepted. It causes just as much pain as what other addiction does. It's just socially accepted and people celebrate you for it. So it's different and you don't get as much help. So I'm, I'm fortunate that I'm, I'm aware of it and I'm conscious of it and I know that if I wasn't doing boxing or something else, it could be something negative. There's almost been like a bit of a balance in my head of like success, boxing, focus on that addiction. And there's also always been something else here to sort of balance it out, something more dark and gloomy and whether that be substance use when I was younger, whether that be other things, validation, gambling at some point. There's always been something else there balancing me out. And I've just watched like I'm the more conscious I become, it's like I'll be like, no, I'm not going to gamble. And then another addiction will come up, something to balance it out. And yeah, and, and I won't notice it straight away. But then I'll be like, wait, I'll be spending more time on social media. I'll be posting more. I'll be caring about the, how many likes I'm getting. Or as I said, when I was younger, there was substance and and. There's just many things that I notice to sort of counterbalance this success and ambition, addiction and obsession. There's all like that dark area that like no one really talks about. And it's something that I'm trying to navigate because I don't want to finish sport, especially when I have kids and be lost and be messy and, and not have control of it. And, and that's why I'm grateful that I'm navigating it now at 24 and not at 35. I mean, it's, incredible that you are self-aware enough to even identify your own patterns at such a young age like 24 year old me was like I don't even like such a mess and just like I would run away from my thoughts I wouldn't sit with them like I can now and work through them so they're not don't become toxic I would run as fast as I could and then just be burnt out all the time it's fascinating that you're able to do it now like at 24 it's it's amazing so I mean good on you for 
for even being able to identify addictive behaviours, let alone go and get help for them. How do you kind of interrupt those cycles? Do you seek help, at, you know, external help? Do you just deal with it internally? Like how do you try and interrupt those cycles or, or just, you know, make sure that you're you're keeping on top of yourself, if that makes sense? Yeah, I think it's a mixture of internal and external help. So internal, I'm very self-conscious and you don't always win the battle with yourself. But the feeling of like, like I said to my partner, like I, w- I wouldn't gamble for a certain amount of time and I haven't done it. And it's like, that's a good feeling. And it doesn't always work. Like you can say something to yourself, like I'm not going to do it. And then you, you, know, you go and do it. And it's like, I think it's more so that I, I just, I crave feeling and this is a messy part of me and something that I'm, I, I just don't understand what direction to go in. And I'm in the sense of like, I crave feeling alive. And often boxing makes me feel alive. Extreme things make me feel alive. And the more that you go to the Olympics, the more you do massive things in your sport, like that's probably one of the most alive feelings you can feel. And it's like life kind of feels a little bit boring. And I think as well drug use does that. It's like you're experiencing this world with substance and feeling and emotion. And then also you come back to normal and it's like life isn't as bright that makes sense. And it, it's weird. It's very strange. And I always notice I feel so much clearer and so much better when I'm just, I think it's more consistent. It doesn't go as high and it doesn't go as low, but when I'm not in an addiction, in an addictive state, because the addiction will send you up high, but then it'll also send you really low. And when I'm not in an addiction, I notice it's just more consistent. It's not as high, but it's also not as low. And yeah, but I think I'm grateful that I've got a lot of people around me who are very aware of me. My partner is so supportive of me and that's probably one of the areas where I've struggled the most in my life is, is a partner and I'm just really grateful that my partner is, is, is super patient and she's open to however I show up and, and she's willing and she's wanting to grow with me. So, yeah, very grateful that she entered my life about a year ago. You wooed her with poetry, obviously. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm so incredibly grateful that you are willing to be so open about that side of yourself. Particularly, I think it's easier to talk about something when you're through it, like when you're completely through the other end. So people often talk about burnout or addiction cycles when they're like, yeah, back 10 years ago, but I've been fine since now. But in the throes of it, for you to actually share what it feels like and to explain those highs and lows, I think one of the reasons why people don't identify it earlier is because they don't hear anyone talk about it. They don't no one talks about this stuff because it's, you know, there's shame, there's stigma, there's embarrassment, or people just don't know how to articulate it. So the fact that you're willing to explain is it just shines so much light on what others might be going through or for other partners whose partners are going through it. You know, the more that we have these conversations, I've never actually heard someone talk about a gambling addiction. I know it happens. I know it can be incredibly destructive, but, you know, if you haven't experienced that, it's so easy to just default to like, just don't do it. Like, just don't spend your money. Like, as if it's not, you know, a psychological cycle that you get in. Like, it's not that simple. And I think you explaining the the high and the hit that you get from that because everything else doesn't compare in that moment, that's that's enormously insightful. And that and no one can imagine what it's like to go to the Olympics and then have to wait four years if you can go back at all to get that same, like that's the pinnacle. If you've lived up there, how are you supposed to live for the, the mm. four years in between before the next one? That No one really talks about that. No, and that, that's, yeah, that's the thing that it's like, I always think that I'll be super ambitious and super striving for meaning, connection, extreme things. I, I understand that's part of my personality. But yeah, like I, I often feel like when I'm 50, it's like my body's not going to be like it is now at 24. Like what? How is it going to hold up? What's 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 going to give me that rush? What's going to give me that thing? Or what's going to make me feel alive? And it's, it, it is something that is concerning. But as I said, I'm I'm fortunate that I'm thinking about it now at 24 and not at 40 or when it's too too late. So I I must admit I do put a lot of things in place, and I, I think it's from my dad. My dad's always thought about the future, and he's very much like living in the future. And he's like, okay, we've got to save enough money so. I can't work forever and it's very much like that and I think he's instilled that in me as well. It's very much forward planning almost too much and it's like you're not actually really living <laughs> in the moment. You're just like, hey, what's next? Yeah. 
Yeah, again, that's that other area where it's like fine line between <laughs> present and mindful, but also like, you know, you need to have like a job tomorrow so you can eat. Yeah, it's kind of yeah. important. But, yeah. <laughs> but I think that's another thing. Like my husband had the same thing when he got injured, like he had did his ACL like three times and he stopped running very abruptly. And there was so much sports psychology inside of the, the sport. But once you quit, there was nothing like, and maybe it's, I'm sure it's better now. This was like a decade ago, but he found that transition from a life where everything is about winning and like silver and bronze is a loss to like trying to translate into a life where there are no gold medals in life. Like you just have, you have a good, happy life and you, nothing has to be gold all the time and you can still have a great life. Like we're not running a race. We're all living different lives. And he found it really difficult to like, to feel happy and to feel fulfilled because yeah, if he got anything that resembled a silver in like at the bakery or like, you know, in normal life activities, he'd be like, my life sucks. It's shit. I'm shit. Everything's shit. What's the point of life? And I think it's amazing that you've got a career as well that isn't competitive, that's just like allows you to to build skills and, and you know, build for a future that, that allows you a break from that like A-type let's win kind of thing. Like are you plumbing at the moment? Do you do it on the side? And do you find that's a nice release from that kind of competitive nature? Yeah, absolutely. I always just, Peter Bowl, who was 800 meter runner at the Olympics, he said this one comment, like, we're all just, we're all just human at the end of the day. And I truly think that like, although of course, absolutely, I I, I went to the Olympics for, for boxing, but at the end of the day, like, I'm just like my brother, who's a plumber. And every time I'm back in Melbourne, I always give him a hand, helping him out. And uh, I'm pretty useless on the tools, but I try my best. And <laughs> But yeah, I think it's so important. I think it's really important to just like, I don't know, never think that you're above someone. But then also at the same time, like something that I'm trying to work on is like never think you're above someone. But then also looking at someone who you strive to be, like never think that you can't be that. How, actually, you mentioned that at start. How are you going to do that differently in Paris? Like you mentioned you you had lost before you even turned up last time. Is that because you'd psyched yourself out? Like because you were like, I don't belong here or I'm not going to like I, what are you changing to turn up in Paris and not have that? So there's a few things that I've been working on in the sense of like for so long. So I only found this out recently about myself. For so long, I kept saying on podcasts or every time I spoke about my story, it's like I just felt I wasn't good enough. And then I thought about this. I've seen my life coach for about six months and we, we realized together that in the moments where at the age of 12 when I lost my first fight, in the, the reason why I went back, it's because I truly believed that I could do it or else I wouldn't have went back or else I wouldn't have even tried. And it's like for so long, I kept telling myself that, oh, maybe I'm not good enough. And, and it's like, no, you've started this. So obviously, you believe that you are good enough. Or else she wouldn't have even tried. So, and it's just like I'm just trying to change the tone of how I talk about myself, talk to myself. It's like even little things when I'm training, I'll be training. It's like, oh, like it does get me to new levels. But I'll be training, I'm like, oh, that's not good enough. Go up, go up higher on the treadmill. And you're like, you're pushing, but it's like encouraging myself more. It's like, mate, that's awesome. All right, let's go one more. Come on, you can do this. It's just like changing that tone. And I think that could unlock. Because I think a lot of my life has been lived in scarcity and fear where I think in love and abundance, especially in those areas, it's only going to propel me forward, I believe. So true. I think the most important conversations you ever have are with yourself and some people really underestimate the fact that like, well, it's in my own brain. Like what I'm saying to myself, how could that possibly make a difference? No one else can even hear it. I think you hear that more than you hear what anyone else tells you. So switching that could be the most powerful thing you ever do. I'm so excited. I'm so excited to watch you head to Paris. So the very last section is where we kind of, you know, we've talked a lot about identity and it's where we strip back the identity that most people know you as and Often, most of the time, it's the identity that you know and you've constructed for yourself as well. And just talk about what brings you joy that's totally separate to boxing, that's totally separate to what you're passionate about, that's totally separate to breaking down stereotypes about masculinity, but that's just purely for fun. And often it's things that are not related to to anything. You don't have to be good at it, but it's just the things I kind of define it as those activities that make you forget what time it is. When your inner child comes out and you're just like, just having a great time. What are the play like ways you play in your life? Yeah, that's that's the bit. I actually listened to a podcast about this recently, and it's like 
play is one of the most important things. That's why, like, you look at kids and they're so, like, just they're just Happy. in their own zone. And, and I think we lose that as, as adults. And for me, I, I've noticed this more so to try and combat how I am in a relationship because I've really been unsuccessful in my past relationships. And something it's because I get quite dependent and reliant on my partner and she's a social butterfly. I love going out. And, but then also as well, I've realized that I need to have my own things. And Oh, you're a stage five clinger. Yeah, I am. I've, I've, <laughs> been, I've been working on it very hard, but I still am. <laughs> <laughs> you're like the little amoeba that like clings on. <laughs> oh, oh, bless. But just trying to find those things that I really enjoy and, and those things are rock climbing, bouldering. I absolutely love it. <gasps> the best. And for me, the whole world kind of stops. And I'm, time goes out the window and I'm just focusing on the wall and I'm pretty bad at it. So you're progressing quick. So <laughs> surfing as well is something that I really love. And I think the reasons as to why I love those two things is because just like boxing, it's quite humbling. Like one, you're never bigger than the ocean. Ocean always wins. And I'm so bad at rock climbing that it really humbles me. So I think that's a beautiful thing is doing things that you're really bad at and you're like, oh, I want to try and beat this wall or I want to try and get on this wave. And they're two places where I really find a lot of joy and peace and play. That I think it's also almost always activities that you can't, they're mutually exclusive with doing anything else. Like they consume your whole being. And it's usually because like you choose things that you're shit at because if you're good at them, you'd just coast through them and you'd be able to be on your phone at the same time. Like you can't surf and be on your phone. So (laughs) I love that. It's usually like if you can't use your phone, it's a good play to game. (laughs) (laughs) So true. Uh, Just to finish up, second last question is three interesting things about you that don't normally come up in conversation. And as you said, you're a bit of an open book, so this is a hard one. Yeah, I I found this one hard, but I I wrote a little list. There's four and you can pick. But oh, yes. I pretty much mentioned all of them, to be honest. But <laughs> Olympics not living up to what I hoped, that's something that I've been navigating lately. As in the result or the overall experience? Uh, a bit of both. And obviously I don't know because I've never been to the Olympics, but I, I don't know if it's because of the COVID. I don't know what it was. But And also for me, when I was in the actual games, I'm focusing purely on results. I'm there for business. I'm not there to really soak up the experience and go to the dining hall or I'm there to compete. I'm there to win that gold medal. And so because of that, I'm not going out socializing, really taking it in. I was more so just focusing on what, what I could focus on. And I spent a lot of my time in my room watching a movie or, or relaxing and, and focusing on comp. So Pondering. <laughs> yeah, pondering hardcore. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine you in like a monastery doing like a Zen Buddhist monk kind of <laughs> like stay just for like a, a you know a year of like silence just to let your brain go to town <laughs> i've thought about you know i think it's called vipassana i can't remember exactly what it's called but that 21 vipassana yeah, yeah. 21 day silent meditate oh my that is up my alley <laughs> i actually am surprised you haven't done one yet it's, it's just a time <laughs> like i really want to there's, there's a 10 day one 10 day would still be very challenging there's a 10 day one year where i grew up in melbourne i really want to try it so one day yeah, I've had quite a few friends do that. The one in Melbourne. Yeah, yeah. So one day, and they like life changing, life changing. Yeah, they say like day seven, day eight, you're really like, no, nah, this I can't do this. And then there's something that happens, say eight, day nine, day ten. So <laughs> the devil leaves your body, and you're like a new person. <laughs> or the devil enters your body. <laughs> yeah. All right, so I already said love for rock climbing and surfing. Latched myself to my identity as a teenager, something that I've been trying to navigate lately. It's like I did things, said things, was things when I was younger. I was hopeless in relationships. I was hopeless to some people. I was a poor human and I haven't fully forgiven myself for those things when I was in high school or after high school. And it's like sometimes I latch myself to that identity. Mm. Yeah, which is something that I'm trying to navigate because it's like I did that, say, say when I'm 15, you do something. And then it's like I don't take into account the last 10 years of growth and the person that I am right yeah. now. And it's like sometimes there's that little bit of like, oh, I wonder if people are going to find out the real me because I'm still latching myself to that identity as a teenager. So 
that's something that I'm trying to navigate. I'm just trying to let go of things that I did. It's like a bit of a clean slate with self, but it is an ongoing process. And then the last thing, people-pleasing tendency. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm a bit of a people-pleaser. Like, yep, yeah, yeah, okay, no worries. <laughs> <laughs> I literally made a TikTok last night that was like real footage of me putting my foot down and being assertive to get what I want. And then it's like me dancing around saying, no worries, I'll totally do that. Can I do it straight away for you? <laughs> I understand completely. No worries if not. <laughs> oh, my God, no pressure. Don't even worry. Don't worry. It's fine. Actually, don't even worry about it. It's totally fine. Like, ignore what I said. I'm like, oh, my God, my life. I'm so bad. <laughs> it's crazy. And I've thought about it, like, why do we do that? And it's like the people that I choose to let in, I don't let in many people, but there's people that I choose to let in. I'm really scared that they're going to leave or, or, or you know, not love me anymore. Mm. Or, and I think it's just, it's just always like, oh, yeah, yeah whatever they want. Yeah, you know, I, do we, I do heaps of access service. And, and, yeah, I just it's something that I'm trying to navigate. And my life coach, for anyone who is a people pleaser that's listening to this, it's like try it for a month when someone asks you, hey, Harry, do you want a coffee? Just something small like that. Just, just go, hey, can you just give me a sec? And it's like even if you really want a coffee, you're freeing up the space to actually think about what you want. And it's like even just by saying, yeah, and I think that's a really powerful thing. So it's something that I've been slowly trying to integrate. Someone asked me what's something that I want to do, even if it's something I really want to do. I just go, hey, can you just give me a second and I'll come back to you? Or, And I think that's a really powerful thing. That is groundbreaking. <laughs> oh, my God. It's like giving your body a chance to override its, like, natural people-pleasing tendencies. Yeah, autopilot. Yeah, and Shit. shout out to uh, to Wai. He's from the Amend Project. And, and yeah, they, he's been my life coach for about six months and I, I love everything that he's about. Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> that is, like, going to change my life. Seriously going to change my life. Whoa. <laughs> I can't even believe that. It's like you're so automatic in the way that you answer that just saying <laughs> – just imagine someone being, like at the shop being like, would you like fries with that? Hold on. Can you just, wait a second? just give me a minute. They're like, um, we haven't got all day, okay? <laughs> Mate, it's a drive through and there's like 20 cars behind you. Like, do you want the fries or not? For fuck's sake. <laughs> so good. Um, something oh something else God. is because as i said relationships something that i really struggle with something else is really helped me with it's like role-playing arguments with with your partner so it's like when you've argued with your partner and things didn't go how you wanted them to go it's like role-playing the actual scenario that you wanted to happen and it's like at least then it's in your body because often we're in autopilot in those moments and it's like if you can do it five times at least you've done it five times so your body knows that there is a different direction you can go in Oh, my God, that's so clever. I just like more and more just think the key to happiness and and success in life, not success in terms of like money or anything, but success at getting the life that you want or the results that you want out of your life is just to hack your own brain, like figure out the patterns that you don't like and then just interrupt them, like practice until you rewire that pathway. Even like I, I shared something the other day about even on the podcast or in speaking gigs, not using the word um. Like the in law, if you say um, even though it doesn't actually mean anything about your intelligence, it just changes how persuasive you sound to someone else. And no one is ever going to not, you know, need to pause every now and then to think about what they're saying. But instead of saying um, you just change it with another word. You just change it with a so or and so and you teach your brain and you're still buying the same amount of time as um buys you you just sound so much more eloquent and i i think i shared it on tiktok or something and people were like (gasps) brain explosion like they've never known how lawyers never say um and it's like they're, they're definitely not not brain farting they're just using a different word and they practice replacing it you can do that with anything i love that so clever they're just Brought me back to a thought when I was in primary school, we used to play maths tiggy, so or time table tiggy. You'd be around the room and the teacher would yell out a time table and she would yell out four times four and, and I would say, what did you say? And then in that time I'm thinking about the four, four times four <gasps> and then she would say four times four. And I'm like, 16. <laughs> <laughs> it's, like, <laughs> it's like I still have to, I'm like 
33 or whatever I am now and I still have to go A, B, C, D, E, like to figure out which letter is after the next letter. I have to go from A every time. So I'm like, well, wait, what did you say? A, B, C, D, E, H, I like to get through. Love that. God, oh, my God, hilarious. And very last question for you, what is your favourite quote? So it's a, it's a quite a long one, but it's The Man in the Arena by Theodore Roosevelt. Oh. Yeah, so, I love that quote. Um, yeah, more than happy to read it, but people who don't know it, yeah, okay. look it up. It's it's unbelievable. I'll, do you want me to read it? Yeah, go. Especially because you are actually the man in the arena. Like this is hilarious yeah. because you are a man inside an arena. <laughs> right, right now. This is a boxing match right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, excuse my reading, but it's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who was actually in the arena, whose face is mared by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of higher achievement, and who at the worst if he fails, at least he fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. Oh, my gosh, so good. It's such a good one. The best. I love that. Do you know, like the no other quote has been repeated, like no other person has had the same favourite quote except that quote, like 10 people. It's like the most universally quoted quote it's, it's hard though because it, quote. it's really, it's really help, helped me in the sense of like prior to the olympics no one cared about what i did with my life no one no one commented no one and and now it's like yes you get thousands of positivity and love but there's like that one percent who try and get you and they say rude things and you think about that comment and then that that quote always brings me back to like they're not in the arena they don't know what i'm going through they don't know what i'm doing i know I'm striving for it. And I think it always just brings me back to like, okay, relax, be settled. Amazing. Well, Harry, thank you so much for your time. I admire you so much. You have such an extraordinary brain and such an extraordinary ability to articulate what's going on up there. So thank you so much for sharing it with our yayborhood, as I call it. (laughs) I could have literally talked to you for hours, but I appreciate your time so much. Uh, Thank you so much for having me on. What a role model, right? I wish I could spend a week or a month shadowing Harry just to learn more from the way his brain works and help share that with young boys, men, and really everyone as much as possible. As always, we are so lucky that our guests are so willing to give us their time. So please do share the episode and tag at Harry underscore Garside, showering him with the neighborhood love or any takeaways that you have to keep helping us grow as far and wide as possible. I promise you will very soon be getting another dose of Ange and Yays of Our Lives with some reflections from Egypt and the honeymoon. So keep your ears peeled. I hope you're having an amazing week and are seizing your yay.